1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Give ear to God's word. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we looked at verses 1 through 3 a few weeks ago, uh, as it was, or a couple weeks ago. And back in verse 1, which we just read again for, to remind us of the context, uh, John told us not to believe every spirit, but what? To test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And he tells us why. Why, does we, why is it that we need to do that? Well, he tells us that many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, and that, that may, if you think about that, that's kind of a sobering truth to, to consider. He doesn't say, you know, a few scattered prop, false prophets here and there, or, you know, there's a small chance possibility you may come across one. He says many. You know, and if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that was the case in the Old Testament as well. So in some ways, not much has changed in that regard. False teachers, false prophets uh, are in this world. They've been here for, for as long as we've uh, the church has been around. Uh, false teaching, false teachers will abound in this life. And so it behooves us to be watchful about this and to test the spirits to make sure that we are not led astray or deceived. And how are we to do that? John doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't just say test the spirits and then let us try to figure it out on our own. How are we to test the spirits to make sure we aren't deceived? Uh, in general, we are to be like, as believers, we are to be like those noble-minded Bereans you read about in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where Luke tells us they, when they heard the word of Paul of, of God being preached by Paul, it says they received the word with all eagerness. They weren't, they weren't holding the message of the gospel at arm's length. They weren't suspicious of everybody they heard, but it says they received the word with all eagerness, and then it adds, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. So there should be an eager reception of the preaching and teaching of God's word, but at the same time, as that eager reception, we should also be examining the scriptures to see if what we're hearing is true to the scriptures, is true to the word of God. So we too, not just the, the Bereans, we must test whatever you hear and whatever you read by the clear teaching of the word of God. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, he says that we must not, quote, not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. And when he says prophecies, he's not just saying, I know many of us, for various reasons, we hear the word prophecy, and if I were to do word association, which I don't usually do in the pulpit, but if I were to say, what's the first thing you think of when you think of the word prophecy, you probably, most of us think of predicting the future, of foretelling future events, which that certainly is an aspect of prophecy, but 
prophecy in general is just speaking forth the word of God, saying, thus saith the Lord, uh, one of the, the, the great books on, on preaching uh, by one of the Puritan writers, he called it the art of prophesying. He wasn't talking about predicting future events. It's a book on preaching. And that's, that's really what we should think of. When you see the word prophecy there, you should think of thus saith the Lord and not just predicting a future events. And so we aren't to despise them, right, when you hear the word of God being proclaimed, but we are to test everything and to hold fast to what is good and what is true. And so I'll ask this morning, do you do that? Is that your practice when you're hearing the word of God being taught and preached, when you're reading a Christian book, which I hope you do at times throughout your life, do you look? Do you keep an open Bible next to whatever book you're reading and say, okay, is this, they give you a proof text. Is this what that text actually teaches you? You might be surprised to find that uh, more often than you might expect, it's not. Sometimes you look up those proof texts for yourself and you, you, you come to the realization that's not what that text says at all. And the person is just using it uh, to support their argument in a way that may not be faithful to the scriptures. But John also gives us a more narrow and more specific test uh, to help us guard against um, false teaching. In verses 2 to 3, he told us, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. So here's the test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is what? Is not from God. This is the Spirit of of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, you know, that word is a very loaded word for most of us these days. But when you think about that, false teaching is of the Antichrist. And that spirit of the Antichrist is already in this world as it, as it is. So the primary litmus test of true and false teaching is to be found in what it teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Any teaching that denies the apostolic doctrine of Christ regarding his true divinity and regarding his true humanity and his incarnation, any teaching that denies those things is not from God, but is of the spirit of the Antichrist. Now think about this now in our context here. With so many pro false prophets having gone out into the world, with the spirit of the Antichrist being in the world already, what are we to do about that? You know, if you think about that at any length, if we have any sense, you might read that and think, I'm, that's, over, that's out of my pay grade. That's above my pay grade. That's above my level to, to deal with. Um, does it make you feel a little bit overwhelmed? You know, you, you could say to yourself, hey, John, like, remember who you're talking to here. Like, why, why are you telling us about false prophets in the spirit of the Antichrist? What are we supposed to do about that? We're just us. We're not you. We're not an apostle. What are we supposed to do about that? Do you wonder how somebody like you, who, you know, maybe you consider yourself just a simple believer in Christ. That's a good thing. You know, not all of us have advanced theological degrees. And I'll, I'll say this, even some of us who have some kind of theological training, these things can sound overwhelming. It's hard. It's not always easy to spot a false teacher and to identify them uh, correctly. Um, is How are we supposed to be able to avoid the smooth talk of deceivers and false prophets? If it's this important, how are we, don't leave this to us. You know, let the professionals do this, right? How are we supposed to do that, we who just believe in Christ? Well, if, if that's what you're thinking when you hear these things, um, John has some good news for you in our text today, I think. He tells us that those of us who have truly believed on Jesus Christ for salvation, unlike those false teachers, 
We are, quote, from God. And then he says that we have, past tense, overcome them. You may not feel like you've overcome them, but you have. And how is that? And why is that? He tells us why. He says, because, quote, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 4. In other words, false teachers may have the spirit of the Antichrist, which is no small thing, in them. But if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit himself indwelling you to protect you and enabling you to abide in the truth of Christ. You're not left to yourself. You're not even just left to the protection of the church. You're, you're left to, protect, to the protection of the indwelling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit himself who ensures your victory in Christ. So the first thing I want us to look at this morning from verse 4 is the believer's victory over error and over the false teaching in the spirit of the Antichrist. Look at verse 4 again. John says, Little children, you are from God. He's contrasting us who believe with those false teachers. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now notice that John notice what John doesn't say or the way he doesn't put this. He doesn't say that you might overcome them. And he doesn't even say in the future at some point you will overcome them if you just try hard enough, believe in yourself, whatever. He doesn't say anything of the sort. He says that we have already overcome them. And that their their victory in ours is described as being in the past Tense. In fact, uh, the word that John uses here, just for an interesting uh, note here, uh, the word victory is the word we get Nike from. Nike is a word that means victory. Uh, and so he uses that, that word here. And it's, it's actually used in the perfect tense. And I won't get into grammar too much here, but a perfect tense verb in, in, in the Greek is something that happened in the past with settled abiding results. That's the idea here. You, you have overcome them decisively. It's like what Paul says, we are, not will be, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is a, a present tense and past tense thing with abiding results. They, now, how, how, how is this victory or overcoming uh, something that we have already? Did the believers in the church that John was writing to, had they refuted the false teachers themselves? Had they had some public debate where they embarrassed them and sent them packing? No, nothing, nothing of the sort. In fact, what they really did was they just did not follow them. They heard their false teaching and they rejected it to the point. That's why earlier in chapter 2, Paul, John, not Paul, uh, John tells them that they went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, the false teachers tried their best to get a foothold in the church. The church wasn't buying it. And so what happened? They left. Why did they leave? Because the people in the church did not fall for their false teaching. So how was it that they had a victory over them or conquered over them? How was it or what, what, was, this vic what was the form of this victory in conquering? It was their faith. <coughs> faith their faith itself was the victory and their constancy of, of faith. John goes on in the very next chapter of this very letter in 1 John 5, 4 to 5, to kind of spell it out for us, he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Same, same word. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the victory that we have and have had even in the past over false teaching is, is our faith. It's our believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, all that he is and all that he has done for our salvation. There's an old hymn based on this text. It says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's really what John is talking about here in our text. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He says, the false teachers had been seeking to deceive these believers, but they had not succeeded. Merely by testing them and refusing to be taken in by their lies, the Christians have conquered. It may not feel like a big victory, but it really is. F.F. Bruce likewise says, John's readers were not more learned more skilled in philosophical debate than the false teachers. Yet by refusing to be persuaded by the false teachers, they had overcome them. You know, humanly speaking, it didn't seem like a very fair fight, and yet the Holy Spirit preserved them in believing the truth. Sometimes that's enough. In many ways, that's really the task. Just stand fast in the faith. That's what we as Christians are. We're called to grow in the faith, to be sure. But sometimes the job is really just to stand fast and stand firm in the faith. That's what John was talking about earlier in the letter in 1 John 2, 24 to 25, when he says this. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide or remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life you know in, in many aspects of life in many uh, different endeavors there's always a, a seeking after new and improved and that's not a bad thing but when it comes to the Christian faith there's no new and improved we grow further into the truth of Christ we don't grow past it we don't add other things to it there is no improving on the truth of the gospel of Christ and so one of the tasks that we all have as believers is to let what we've heard from the beginning when we first heard the gospel remain or abide in us. Now, how are we to do that? How are, how are you to do that? If you're sitting here this morning, you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to do? Pastor, I'll just say this. Immerse yourself in the reading and the study of the scriptures. It is the word of God that the Holy Spirit himself uses to work faith in you both at your conversion as well as in your growth in grace and knowledge of Christ. It's the word of God that the Holy Spirit works through and uses to bring you to saving faith and to make you grow in that faith. And so if you want to grow in the faith that's your victory over the world, you need to spend time in the word of God. During the week, every day, if you have the ability to do it, read some part of scripture, study that scripture, read books and things that help you learn the scripture more often, Attend diligently upon the means of grace in the church, the preaching and teaching of God's word, as you have the ability to do so. And that brings us to the second point this morning from our text. How is it that we who believe have overcome uh, those who are of the world? How have we come to have this victory over the world and even over the spirit of the Antichrist? It's only by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Look again at verse 4. John says, Little children... You are from God and have overcome them. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So if you're a believer in Christ, your victory over the world, over false teaching, and even over the spirit of the Antichrist has nothing to do with anything inherent in any of us. 
It's not due to how smart you are. It's not due to how educated or clever or strong we are. In fact, if that were all that we had to rely upon were our own intellect and strength and gifts, we would have lost a long time ago. We all would have fallen for error and false teaching a long time ago. We would have had no hope for victory over, over error at all. And so how is it that we conquer? One reason and one reason only, because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And who is that he that's in us that John is talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Lord and giver of life, as the Nicene Creed puts it. We who believe, you who believe are not left to yourself in this life after your conversion. God doesn't just bring you to saving faith and let you hold on by the skin of your teeth all by yourself. The Holy Spirit himself indwells every believer in Christ, and he himself is our sanctifier. He is the guarantee of your salvation. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit within you that you are sealed, as Paul says, for the day of salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says this. In him, that's in Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here it is, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The indwelling Holy Spirit within every believer is the guarantee of your salvation and your inheritance. It's, he is the reason, he is the main reason why nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the main reason you have victory over everything and are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit, for example, who makes you alive spiritually from the dead when you used to be dead in transgressions and sins when you were in your unbelief. It's the Holy Spirit who works faith in us so that we are united to Christ by faith and he, he, the Holy Spirit, is the one who applies all the benefits of Christ's redemption to us so that we become partakers of all those spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. He is, he is infinitely greater than he who is in the world. This, this, this text, this, even that verse about him being greater than, uh, the one in us being greater than the one that's in the world, it brings to mind uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. You might recall that story where the king of Syria you know, he kept making these plans, and they kept getting frustrated. I'm paraphrasing here. So he asks his, his, you know, smart guys around him, all right, basically, which one of you is telling the king of Israel my plans? Like, there's a, there's a snitch in the room. Who's, who's telling them what we're going to do before we do it? Every time I make a plan, it gets frustrated. And his people tell him, it ain't us. There's a prophet. There's this guy, Elisha. You know, it's, it's him. He, he, he knows what you say in your bedroom. Like, he, he, he knows what you're saying, and he tells them what to do and how to get out of it kind of thing. And so what did the king of Syria do? He sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city where Elisha lived. Think about it. He doesn't go to a military location. Like, you'd think that's where he'd send an army. He sends an army after a prophet. Not, not an armed man, not a man of war, a man of God. That was his real enemy. That was his real enemy, and so that was his target. And so when Elisha's servant left the house in the morning, you know, he's probably rubbing his eyes, having his first cup of coffee, going out to get the morning paper, and he looks up, and what does he see? 
it says he, he looked up and he saw horses and chariots and a great army surrounding him. And so he went to Elisha and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I don't know what he expected Elisha to tell him. I've got an armory right back here, you know, in the back room. I've never shown it to you, but let's lock and load and go out and see what we can do between the two of us. Uh, that wasn't what he did. They were no match for an army. But remember the words of Elisha to that frightened servant in 2 Kings 6, verses 16 to 17. He said, do not be afraid. Why? For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, it doesn't say that the servant went back outside and looked around to double check. And, oh, yeah, we have, the, we have our own army. No, he doesn't do that. It says, then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, it was all around the city, but what's the point? That the chariots of God were surrounding the city to protect Elisha and his servant. God's angel armies were encamped all around Elisha in order to protect him. Calls to mind Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. In other words, when you read the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 6, our response isn't supposed to be, oh, that's interesting. Well, that's good for Elisha, right? It certainly was good for Elisha, and it was good for his servant. The point is, according to the psalmist, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And I think that should be, that should be a, at the very least, a good description of every believer. Every believer should be someone and is someone who fears the Lord. And if that's the case, the angel of the Lord stands around and encamps around us who fear him to protect us and deliver us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.31, What shall we say uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be what? Against us. It doesn't mean you won't have enemies. It doesn't mean you won't have trouble and persecution. Even violent persecution, but it means that God watches over us. And if God is for us, who can ultimately be against us? And think about this. You know, we would all, we would all love to have maybe not been in Elisha's situation but we would have loved to have seen it. Wouldn't you, when you read that story, don't you think, man, I wish I could have like been a fly on the wall or you know, been you know, somebody in the area with Elisha and had God opened my eyes and let me see angel armies. You know, it would have been a frightening thing to see. Angels weren't these Hallmark, called, you know, Hallmark card, I can't even say the word, you know, fat babies with wings and a, and a bow and arrow. They were, they were tremendously fearful things to see, and they still are. And yet, when you think about what, what, what John is saying about us, we don't want to disrespect angel armies in any way. We're glad that they exist and God still uses them to protect his people. But he who is in us is infinitely greater, not just greater than the spirit of the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit is infinitely greater and more majestic and powerful than even those angel armies. We not only have angel armies encamped around us to protect us, those of us who fear the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you to protect us and keep us in the faith and to seal us for the day of redemption. And that brings us to our last point. Last but not least, we're going to look at what John says about one of the, the marks of a believer in Christ. One of the distinguishing characteristics of a believer in Christ. 
John tells us that because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us as believers, we will then listen to and follow the truth of the apostolic doctrine of Christ. And this is really one of the marks of a true Christian. Look at verses 5 to 6 again. He says, they, talking about the false teachers, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We, talking about the apostles, not us, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the false teachers were not from God, but were from the world. And that's why he says, that's why the world listens to them. In other words, the, they, they preach a worldly message and the world follows after them willingly. Think about, think about that when it comes to what's being preached today in many pulpits throughout our land. Far too many pulpits in our land are filled with men and women who are guilty of preaching a worldly message. And that is why they have such a large following. They want to attract a large crowd, so they preach to the worldly man or woman what they want to hear and what makes the worldly person and the unrepentant person comfortable. Sin is rarely, if ever, mentioned, or it's watered down or redefined out of existence. Or at times, you think about this, at times the only sins that are thundered against by those uh, who preach about repentance and sin at all very often are just those sins that our present-day culture does not like as well or finds distasteful. They don't ever preach against the sins, any of the sins that our perverse culture holds dear. They preach a worldly message, and that's the audience that they get. Is this not an accurate description of much of liberal Christianity in our day, if there is such a thing? And even what, what, what passes for what we thought sometimes call the church growth movement. What is their message? Are they preaching the truth of Christ or are they preaching a worldly message to make people comfortable in their sin and unbelief? I think it's clear that very often it's the latter. That's what they're doing. And that's why the world listens to them because they don't preach the truth of God. But John says boldly that he and the other apostles, they are from God. And then he says, in addition to that, whoever knows God does what? listens to us. In other words, John, John in some sense was saying he could tell who the believers were by those who listened to the truth and did not follow after error. Now, no pastor or teacher today has the right to say what John says here. No, no pastor has the right on his own, me or anybody else, to say we are, from, we are from God and everybody who is of God listens to us. In other words, if you're not listening to me, you're not following God. No preacher has the right to say such a thing. The apostles could. And we don't have apostles today, do we? But what do we have? We have the writings of the apostles and prophets in the Old and New Testament. So we still have the doctrine of the apostles. And whoever listens to the doctrine of the apostles in the scriptures is from God. And whoever isn't, isn't yet from God. They have not yet been converted. Now, we have no apostles today, but again, we have their doctrine preserved and written for us in the word of God. And whoever knows God truly listens to the apostolic doctrine that is found in God's word. Ian Hamilton writes the following. He says, one of the distinguishing marks of people who know God is that they listen to, believe, and embrace apostolic teaching. And then he adds, your response to the ministry of God's word will in large measure reveal whether you know God or whether you are not from God. 
I think that is exactly what John is getting at here in our text. And that really just makes sense if you think about it from what the rest of the Bible says. Uh, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2.14? He says, the natural person, the person who is not born again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. They're foolishness. That's the dumbest thing they've ever heard. They can't imagine believing something like that. And he says, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And when he says spiritually, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit within us, convincing us of the truth and granting us faith. The unconverted person, the person not born again, the natural man, as Paul puts it, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, and he's not able to understand them because he does not have the Spirit of God. The things of the Spirit of God are only truly understood by those who have the Holy Spirit at work in them. The natural person, the person without the Spirit of God, is not yet able to understand them because it's only by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that we can truly understand the Word of God, especially the Gospel, and believe unto salvation. You know, the Lord Jesus said something very similar to this in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, he says, My sheep do what? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Where do you hear the voice of, of Christ now? In the scriptures. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater, there's that word again, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he adds, I and the father are one. Another thing, another thing, we talk about the perseverance of the saints. We persevere because God preserves us by his almighty power and by the work of the Spirit. How are Christ's sheep, according to John 10, according to Christ himself, how are Christ's sheep distinguished from the goats from those who do not believe? By their response to his voice, which is heard in the scriptures. His sheep and his sheep alone hear his voice and recognize him as their shepherd and what's the result? How do you know if they hear his voice and recognize him as their shepherd? He says they follow him. They follow him. Their faith, faith without works is dead, right? They, the, the Christ sheep recognize his voice in the scriptures and they follow him at his word. And so I'll ask this morning, what, does that describe you? Do you recognize the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures? Do you recognize him as not just the shepherd, but as your shepherd. When you hear the Bible being preached and taught, when you read the scriptures and what it says, do you hear the voice of, of the Lord Jesus as your shepherd, and do you believe on him and follow him because of it? When you hear the word of God being preached, do you hear the voice of God speaking to you in the scriptures? And do you then believe and follow Christ? And if so, that means you're born of God and you know God, and you are one of Christ's sheep. This is how we are to know, as John says in verse 6, recognize really the spirit of truth and the spirit of error or falsehood. And so as, as we come to the new year, I'm not big on resolutions, but this wouldn't be a bad one to, to recommit to. Make it your aim and habit. Uh, you don't have to wait till tomorrow to start, by the way, uh, to be reading the scriptures. 
Just read it. That's where, that's where we all have to start. Read the scriptures, meditate upon the scriptures and study your Bible. Attend diligently upon the ministry of the word in the preaching and teaching of God's word. If you want to make a resolution, uh, you know, we, everybody talks about going to the gym and all these things. That's fine. Read your Bible. Read your, read your Bible on a daily basis and pray and study and meditate upon it. By this you will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You will abide in the truth of Christ and will be better equipped to recognize the counterfeits and deceivers when you hear them. And may this help each of us not only to grow in grace, but to be strengthened in your assurance of salvation in Christ so that in the new year to come, the joy of the Lord might really be our strength more and more and all that to the glory of God. Amen.